a Broadway star in one of the most iconic roles in all of Broadway history. Buckle on up as you are about to hear from the green lady herself who starred as Elphaba in Wicked. Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast and get ready to be inspired, motivated and achieve massive success. And now, your host, the mayor of motivation, Eli Marcus. Our guest today is one of Broadway's hottest surging stars who played Elphaba in Wicked for two years and also appeared in Fiddler on the Roof, as well as in Finding Neverland and the Bridges of Madison County. This celebrated singer and actress performs all over the U.S., including at the Broadway Concert Series at Broadway Broward Center's Parker Playhouse in Florida, Florida on January 21st, 2024 at 7 p.m., which even I don't want to miss as I plan to attend. After this interview, I know you'll want to join me. Welcome to The Motivation Show, Jessica Vosk. Hello. Hi, everybody. It's so good to be here. Well, thank you for coming on and thank you for your great energy. Oh, my <laughs> you know, pleasure. One of the uh, thoughts that I have about someone like yourself who's done so well out there in the performing community is really what was it like growing up, Jessica? And did you always want to be a singer and actress? And what gave you the inspiration to be a performer? Gosh, that's such a good question. I um yeah, I, I grew up in a smaller town in New Jersey. I'm a Jersey girl. So when I grew up, I, I was kind of just a hop, skip, and a jump outside of New York City. And I grew up getting to attend shows and, you know, listening to Broadway cast albums. And, you know, I was such a huge music fan from when I was small because my parents had a record player and they were massive, massive fans of Joni Mitchell and Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, and Linda Ronstadt, and so that music made such an impact on seventies. Oh, I mean, that's something you know that I actually am in the midst of producing right now is that era of music, and it just is it, that really hit me. I think when I was about three, and I became such a huge lover of music and singing. I, I did all of the plays and theater and community theater and choir. And, you know, the crazy thing about me is that once I graduated high school, I wound up just completely veering left and going into finance before I decided to leave that wacky world of of Wall Street and finance and try and make it on Broadway. So, you know, with a, I always say to, to students, because I love to teach, you know, that no, no path is the correct one to get to Broadway or to get to where you want to go, you know, it will happen on its own time. And mine just happened to go off in, into the corporate world of finance first before I decided to to cut my teeth on Broadway. So I've been a lover of it. It's been my passion since I was a kid. And and I, I'm so lucky and grateful that I get to do this now for a living. It's a very pinch me moment at all times. Well, I'm glad you didn't veer into the accounting world because then you would have had to do a one-woman show called like the uh, Singing CPA, <laughs> which I, you know, which I'm sure would sell in the right setting. You know, I'm sure somebody will get on top of that. Wouldn't yeah. surprise. I think the right numbers for you are performing numbers. <laughs> yeah, very. I, 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 I feel very lucky and happy. Yes, for sure. 
So, Jessica, how did you get this uh, plum roll uh, alphabet, you know, in the wildly popular, popular musical Wicked that's been around, you know, for over a decade now? Yes. I mean, you know, Wicked has been around, I like to say, for hundreds of years, but I was the um, 15th anniversary Alphaba on Broadway. And before that, I had done the tour for a little over a year. And I had been doing Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway at the time. And, you know, when I made my Broadway debut, it was very very fast from the bridges of Madison County to Fiddler, I think, with Finding Neverland in the middle, it was maybe like two or three years in doing all of those shows. So I sort of, my trajectory was pretty fast once I once I knocked the door down into the Broadway world. But I had been having such a great time at Fiddler, and I played a role called Fruma Sarah, and she's, you know, just this larger-than-life ghost that comes out of nowhere and just belts a big song out of nowhere. And a casting director who happens to cast Wicked was there, and I nicknamed that role Dead Alphaba because she was such a belter and, you know, she's dead. And so after that, I got the phone call asking if I would be interested in coming in for the role to do the tour. And I sort of just, I just said, yes, I went in maybe two or three times and lo and behold, I got cast. And while I was super excited, I had no idea how much it would change my life. And kind of take me on the journey that I that I get to be on today, which is pretty cool. And probably one of the hardest things I've ever done, to be quite honest with you. When a lot of people ask some of the hardest musical theater roles, I say Alphaba is at the top of that. But boy, did I have just a blast for the two years I got to play her. You know, I'm curious if you know how many people actually auditioned for that role. Oh, God. I, I mean, it's got to be thousands and thousands by now. You know, the thing about about me, which was such a, a different thing at the time was that usually Wicked promotes from within because you'll start somebody out in the ensemble and then they understand the show and they and they get to understudy the role of Alphaba, so they get it. But I came out of nowhere. So I had no idea, you know, the actual physical stamina yet. I had no idea the vocal stamina yet. So, you know, it was, they took a chance in having me join just kind of I always say like fresh off the boat of Fiddler and into the world of Wicked, having never, ever done the show before and only seeing it when it opened. But I, I mean, thousands of women have auditioned for it. And so we we call it the green girl sisterhood because we've all, any, any, any of us who have donned the green makeup and, and done that show know what an incredible honor and also how difficult it is. Jessica, were you aware of your own X Factor going into that audition? Do you know why they selected you? You know what? I have no idea. I mean, listen, I have been singing my whole life. It, it was always my strong suit was singing. But the interesting part about Wicked is that if you took all the music away, it would read as a really fantastic play. And uh, there are all of these really great morsels of acting moments and little nuggets of, of really serious stuff that... You know, it doesn't get a lot of credit for because people just come in thinking it's the story of of what happened before The Wizard of Oz. And so it really, it helped me understand how good of an actor I was at the end of the day. Because if you go in and everybody knows your voice first, they automatically just think, well, she's just a great singer. But I did go in or come out of it thinking, you know what, I really, really am such a good actor too. So when I went in there, I just thought, okay, well, they really like my voice. They think I can sing Defying Gravity pretty well. By the time I left, I thought, you know, now I really have this toolbox of, of great, you know, information that I can take elsewhere. 
And tell us about the process of the green makeup. Have you ever wanted to actually maybe go into the subway just as a, as a joke? <laughs> oh, sure. I want to go everywhere as a joke. Are you kidding? I, um, you know, there was one time on tour when my makeup artist got sick, so I had to do it myself. And it's a real process of putting that makeup on it, it truly from start to finish before, you know, you get in that chair, it's a, it's a half an hour, which isn't a ton of time if you think about it, but there is a lot involved. There's a lot of shading involved. You think maybe it's one color green. It's like three or four different types of contour and, you know, actually making you look like a human and not just like a green screen Kermit the Frog. And <laughs> And it's pretty, it's pretty wacky, but by the time you take the makeup off, we call it the green halo because there's just green that exists in your hairline. And even though you're, you've taken the makeup off of your face, you just kind of have a tint about you. And I remember after the show or in between shows, you know, you always take the makeup off before putting it back on. And anywhere I'd go, in Manhattan, on the subway, to a CVS, to a restaurant, I would, you know, people would just give me that really awkward look. Some people would ask me, like, if I had just gone on a color run and they, you know, somebody threw paint <laughs> at me. Or, I mean, it, it was a real, somebody asked if I had done my hair just green on my hairline on purpose. So it is really hilarious. And if I, if given the chance, I would love to run around the subway. It seems so far off base. I mean, you know, people do that all the time, but this would be kind of fun. Although the New York subway, you know, might, is kind of be a normal thing. You know, That's exactly <laughs> right. Might not even give you a second glance. Yeah, I'm, nobody's going to look at me. Nobody's going to yeah. look at me. So what does performing uh, do for you? What brings you the most joy in performing? Is it the audience reactions? Is it the stage door fans waiting for your autograph to get a photo? The chance to see glee and joy, people's eyes, all of the above? Gosh, you know, I, I think that there, for me, I think it's different for everybody, but but it has so much to do with the audience for me. And I think during the past couple of years of not having audiences because of the pandemic and not knowing if audiences would ever come back, I realized as a performer just how integral it is to have the audience as the final cast member of anything, really. I mean, the fact that I've that I get to do all of these concerts, which is, you know, such a big medium for me outside of the Broadway world. I love doing concerts, but I cannot do them without that audience participation. You know, my work is very participatory. Having an audience there as the final member of what I call the band is huge. And I've had such a, an amazing fan base over the, you know, I've only been in the business for 10 years, which might sound long, but really isn't, isn't that long from start to, to where I am now. And I have such an incredible fan base of people who come to see these shows. And I am very well aware that I wouldn't be where I am without them. So for me, that's the joy of of sharing what it is that I do because it's different every single time. That's also the joy of live theater. No, no two shows are the same. And usually that has a lot to do with the energy of the audience. I mean, and it's not always great energy. I'll be completely honest. However, I will say that any of the concerts that I have done, you know, from Carnegie Hall to touring around the country, the audiences are exquisite. And I just love it so much. The fans are really the why for me. If I can change somebody's life by telling a story in a Broadway show or by singing something and telling a story in concert where they have a memory or it takes them back to a time where they feel incredibly safe or it takes them out of a, a terrible day that they've just had for those couple of minutes, then that means that I've done my job. You know, having gratitude for the people that 
actually watch you, I think, is a, is a common theme that I find in performers, you know, who are the happiest, you know, and, and you know, g- get so much out of their craft. So I, I salute you, you know, for understanding that role, particularly, as you said, the pandemic taught us so much because without an audience, what are you? You know, oh, you're, you're just really? performing to yourself, you know, so, so I want to salute you for that. You mentioned Carnegie Hall. I understand you made your debut in Carnegie Hall in November 2021. I understand you even sold out that show. Tell us a little bit about that. Gosh, I mean, talk about a a very surreal pinch me moment. You know, you grow up understanding that Carnegie Hall is this, you know, titan in the performing world. And, you know, they had approached me after I had finished Wicked and said, you know, it would be great if you did a show here. And and I was, I thought, you know, do you have the right Jessica? Are you talking about a different Jessica? But no, they were talking about me. And so I got, you know, the offer in my inbox that it was happening. And then two months later, the pandemic hit and I thought, okay, well, it's never going to happen. Lo and behold, in November of 2021, there was this pocket of time when theaters opened back up before they closed back down again. And that's when my show was. And yeah, it was, you know, a sold out, you know, over 3000 people in Stern Hall and I barely even remember the night because it was just so incredible. And I had, you know, my my dear friend Kristen Chenoweth come and perform with me. We did some Wicked. And I had one of my incredible friends, Scott Hoying from Pentatonix. I had a, a, a friend of mine from the New York City Ballet. And we like, curated this show in a very beautiful way with Warren Carlyle, who is a you know brilliant Broadway director. And I had no idea that it would be such a an impetus for what my concert career is now. But having done that Carnegie Hall show, it's it's this very cool reminder that that we can do scary things. We can do big things and hard things. And, you know, just a year after that, in December of 2022, I came back to Carnegie Hall and did a big Judy Garland piece there. And it and I'm it's a honor beyond life to get to go there every single time. And did to you sing be- somewhere over the rainbow? Oh, I sang her, we did most of her 1961 Carnegie Hall show. It was a huge tribute, Judy Garland tribute. So it was, you know, everything you think it could possibly be with a huge symphony, it was. I was listening to her uh, famous Christmas song yesterday. Sometimes you forget that she did, you know, one of the most iconic Christmas songs ever done. And it gives you goosebumps to think that, you know, she's not been with us, you know, for 50 years almost. Yeah. You yeah. Know? I, I usually say that, you know, in, in having done a show, of, uh, you know, like hers and gone through the archives and, and, you know, remembered that record of hers, which was a live capture of that Carnegie Hall show of hers in 1961, is that she only, you know, lived a few years past that moment. And we lost her so early in her life. And, you know, thinking now that, that, you know, she celebrated her 100th birthday, which is why we did this concert. You know, it goes to show that women back then, she was such a an incredible supernova of a of a performer in a time when, you know, women didn't really perform like that. And she kind of broke all of these glass ceilings and boundaries for people like me who want to step in and do work like that. And so I I think that's why she remains such a, for many, many reasons, but such a very present singer because it almost feels like she's been here this whole time because of the amount of work that she did. And, 
yes, we sang have yourself a merry little Christmas as well. And I'm telling you, like, there's an energy, even from singing her version of that song that just permeates anywhere that you sing it. So now I'm getting goosebumps right now. Just thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, truly. And, you know, it's hard to believe, you know, 1939, I believe, was Wizard of Oz, which really set the gold standard. You know, it, it could have been yeah. done today, and I don't think it could have been done any better, even with special effects that we have today, than it was in 1939. And, you know, she's the kind of the gold bearer of, of you know, leading off with, uh, with uh, singing in a, like a, a movie musical. You know, That's nothing great. like it. Yeah, it still sets the gold standard, as far as <laughs> I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, you know, you look back, you, there's a reason why we still watch it. And it's a tradition for people to watch it, even though you know that with all of the new fangled green screen AI, you know, any of that kind of stuff that exists now, it's it's amazing how ahead of its time it was. And really knowing that somebody like Judy Garland started when she was three years old and that was her entire life. And you think, yes, we lost her when she was 47, which which is so incredibly young. But the amount that she was able to do basically from birth onward was, you know, more than people do in an entire lifetime. So, you know, she has quickly become an idol of mine as far as, you know, what a strong woman looks like. Yeah, join the club. It's a big yeah. club. <laughs> so, Jessica, do you ever experience uh, fear or jitters or something like that? And if so, how do you handle it, overcome oh, it? Every time, every time I used to be used to scare the crap out of me all the time and go, oh, my God, how am I supposed to go on stage? I'm shaking. I'm too nervous. I don't know what I'm going to say. You know, none of my shows are scripted. Any of my concerts, none of them are scripted. I come on with a set list and things that I know I want to talk about, but I work best again when I'm working off of an audience and when I have stories that pop into my head or when somebody reminds me of something. So I go in completely unscripted and blind. And uh, yes, it's my own fault, but but that's what works for me. And I always have nerves before every single show. But what I've learned is that if I didn't have them, then why am I doing this thing? You know, there's the there's an excitement and an adrenaline that comes with the fact that I get to do this. And I'm sure that every profession that people have, I'm sure that doctors and lawyers and nurses and, you know, yes, even the accountants have nerves and jitters. Even and, the po us podcasters. Yes, even the podcasters, baby. They, you know, everybody goes in to what they know and love and their passion. And if they don't have a bit of jitter and a bit of adrenaline and a bit of nerves, you know, why are we doing this thing that we love? And so I always say to kids, and I know I'm, I'll be teaching a masterclass down in Fort Lauderdale when I'm there, but when I talk to to these kids about nerves it's it's a lot of physical movement that i do before i go to an audition or i go to a show i'll do you know pilates or yoga or a physical warm up just to wake up my body and to remind myself that this is a normal thing it's normal well, let's get into that master class i understand you're going to do that a day before you actually yes, I am. you know do the parker you know so that's going to be on saturday January 20th from uh, 4 to 6 p.m., also down in Fort Lauderdale. Now, could an amateur like me, who's usually better off most of the time, you know, singing in the shower, could I actually learn how to significantly, you know, increase my chops? Or you, know, you really kind of have to come with kind of pretty good chops to begin with in order to kind of get to the next level. What do you think? Well, you know, it's interesting. A lot of what, it, what I do and a lot of, you know, what my colleagues do is acting through song. So essentially what that means in a masterclass setting is I have students come and they bring a cut of a song that they really want to work on. And the point of doing it 
you know, usually it's from a show. The point of doing it is how do you take that particular song and how do you relate to that song where you can make an audience member or a, a you know table of creatives being directors, choreographers, and the like casting directors feel something from what it is that you're singing because you're so connected to it. Now, a lot of that does have to do with breath control or sound. Sometimes we'll work on working from super head voice to a belt or a mixer. I ask students usually what it is that they're trying to work on. So yes, I mean, usually I work with students who have the basics of the ability to sing and and the ability to understand, you know, basic emotion and connecting and empathy and vulnerability. But it's super scary. And the point of these masterclasses for me is to let a group of people know, and this is all levels, truly all levels, to know that it's a completely safe space, right? You're not going in there to sing a song for me that's completely polished. Otherwise, why are we working on it? So you have to kind of come into a class knowing that I'm going to be as vulnerable being the the teacher as the students are getting up there and and singing 32 bars of a, a song that they're so excited to sing. There's well, gonna- I, I like what you just said, being vulnerable. You know, the teacher's vulnerable. So then, you know, uh, that makes you more comfortable. You're going to be a little more vulnerable. And just as you said, even as a 10-year performer out there, you know, there's nerves. And, and if you don't have the nerves, you know, why do it? So feel uh-huh. the, you know, there was a great book called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by Dr. Susan Jeffers. And I think that you've kind of summarize that, you know, it's just like, okay, feel the fear. You're going to have it. Just do it anyway, because you're going to get the rewards at the end of the day. Yeah. And, and uh, I always think to myself, you know, if I'm willing to give out the advice, I have to be able to do it myself. So when I talk about vulnerability, it's one of the scariest things, but it's something that sets performers apart from what I love to call like just, you know, the muggles, of of the world who don't perform but they love to watch performers and that's when i say you know you leave you leave people in the audience feeling something because you're willing to be so vulnerable i mean it's a superpower in itself because vulnerability is a scary thing so i always just think about the fact that if i'm going to teach it i better be willing to do it myself. Otherwise, why am I doing this thing? Well said. So Jessica, you know, you're coming to take center stage at the Parker Playhouse, which is part of that whole Broward Center complex. You know, you're coming down on Sunday, January 21st. You have a 7 p.m. performance. You're going to be accompanied even by a Grammy and Emmy Award winner, uh, John McDaniel, who was uh, part of the uh, Rosie O'Donnell show for its entire six-year run. And I'm already sold, and I'm super excited to be there. But what is the rest of the uh, potential audience in store for? What should we expect? Well, you know, you mentioned John McDaniel, and he is such an incredible musician on top of the fact of just having all of these other skills from doing something like The Rosie Show. So he has this ability to be able to banter along with me and to be able to bring his own improv, which I love. And and he's just a wonderful person and a wonderfully talented musical director. Now, my shows... For those who have not seen it yet, there are a bunch of people who who come and travel and see my shows so they know no one show is the same, even if there's a lot of the same songs from one set to the next set of wherever I'm traveling, no two shows are the same. So in January, this is 20, it's going to be 2024. It'll be one of my first shows of the new year. It'll probably be a lot of new material on the set list. Like I said, I'm working on right now or in 2024, I'll be working on 
a big new um, production of all of that gorgeous Laurel Canyon music from the 60s, from 1960 to 1970 of, you know, anything you can think of from Mamas and the Papas to Linda Ronstadt to Joni Mitchell to Crosby, Stills, Nash to the Eagles to, I mean, you name it, all of that music. Mamas and the Papas, maybe a little Monday, Monday or something well, like that. I, yes, there's there's <laughs> two or three songs that I would love. Monday, to Monday. It's it's just it's such perfect music. I happen to think that you know it's it's as much of the Great American Songbook as as a Gershwin or a Porter. But I have a lot of range that I want to explore this time. I want to be able to do you know a little bit of Maury Yeston because he's one of the first composers that I worked with outside of finance. I want to do some Sondheim, but I love to mix that up with some Beatles. I want to do the Elton John that I know and love, but I also want to bring in, you know, some Fiddler on the Roof and some Wicked and a lot of the things that I've done and some Judy. The Judy stuff has become, again, a fast favorite, and I have not had the chance outside of Carnegie Hall to do that in concert. So this is going to be a pretty spectacular kind of first time to do that. Now, am I getting too ambitious here to ask you to do a little acapella line or two, maybe? Sure, <laughs> you have to pick the song. Which uh, is there a song in particular? Oh my God, they're all favorites. You know, uh, the Wizard of Nye, uh, you know, uh, Beatles, uh, all of the things you mentioned, Joni Mitchell, uh, Fiddler yeah. on the Roof. I mean, beggars can't be choosy. Oh gosh. Well, you know, with the Beatles song, the Sondheim song that I love to do is. Um, Somebody hold me too close. Somebody hurt me too deep. Somebody sit in my chair and ruin my sleep and make me aware of being alive. Alive. So that's a little bit of something that you oh might hear. Oh my God, there's some goosebumps. Well, we need uh, everybody to come and join me. I need some seatmates, you know. I'm sure you're, sure you're going to fill it up anyway, but uh, you can buy tickets online at the parkerplayhouse.com and ticketmaster.com by phone. Uh, get your pens ready. It's 954-462-0222. Or just drop by in person at the Broward Center's Auto Nation box office. So, Jessica, when you uh, do this great event and thereafter, how are people going to stay in touch with you? What's the best way? Well, first of all, when I do these events, apart from having the, the amazing masterclass the day before, I always love to have a meet and greet with fans afterwards. So everybody can come after the show. It's it's something that has become a big favorite of mine to do after shows. But in addition to that, you know, there's a lot of new news coming out next year. So uh, it's just at Jessica Vosk on any of those lovely social platforms. And you've got my website, which is jessicavosk.com, where all of my performances coming up can be uh, seen and looked at. And you can buy tickets from there as well, uh, especially for this show. You know, I'm so excited to come down. I can't wait to spend some time with these incredible Floridian fans. So please, yes, get your tickets. Come on down. Have a fantastic time. It's as much fun for me as it is for audience members. I can promise you that. Well, I'll be one of a few thousand people in the audience. I can't wait to see you on January 21st at the Parker. Thank you so much, Jessica. Oh, thank you. If you would like to inquire about having Eli motivate your team, speak at your event, or coach you personally for massive success, email the motivation show at gmail.com. 
That's the motivation show at gmail.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.